Hello and welcome to the Hoopla Improv Podcast, the podcast all about the who, what and where of improv. My name's Leo Maxwell and each week I'll be interviewing great improvisers to pick their brains for top tips, favourite exercises and even the odd bit of juicy improv goss along the way. My guest today is Lee Simpson. Lee is a hugely experienced improviser who is probably best known as a member of Actors Nightmare, Paul Merton's Impro Chums and of course the Comedy Store Players. Aside from teaching his advanced class at Hoopla, Lee has also written plays, appeared in sitcoms, films and on Radio 4 panel shows. He is also a founding member and an artistic director of the theatre company Improbable. In this episode, Lee delves into the cerebral side of improv, discussing how going beyond yes and to notice what you notice can increase the presence you have on stage, why failure is such an important tool in improvisation, and what it's like to interact with a rowdy audience at the Comedy Store. Enjoy. Lee Simpson, welcome to the Hoopla Impro Podcast. Thank you for having me. How are you doing today? Today? Not bad today. I'm a little annoyed because the slugs have been eating my beans, but other than that, not bad. (laughs) Is that something that's keeping you going during lockdown? Slug fighting and allotment work? I think I haven't got an allotment. I'm not lucky enough. I've just got a couple of raised beds in my little garden. But uh, yeah, it's that's nice. It's nice to take a, an hour or two in the day and go and look at the earth and go grow. You buggers grow. Have you not been uh, tempted to make any viral content? No, I'm, I'm old. You know, I'm old. Viral content to me is what you catch. That's probably quite prophetic for the times we're living in, I think. The first question I wanted to ask you is one I've been asking everybody. If someone were to come up to you, Lee Simpson, at the comedy store where you've been for the last 30 years, which might have happened to you, and they said, I'm new to improv, um, I'd love to know your top tips on how to be a great improviser. Uh, what would those tips be? Bloody hell. Top tips. It, it's mostly going to be slightly philosophical bullshit. That's mostly what i deal in i have taken your class and we're going to move on to that later on don't worry yeah um so i would say and this is the beginning of the of the wearisome uh highfalutin stuff i would say awareness work on awareness so can you notice what's happening to yourself doesn't matter what exercise the teacher gives you doesn't matter what situation you find yourself in on stage off stage in a workshop Can you work on awareness? And I guess that theory of awareness leads into noticing what you notice, which is something you taught us in class. Could you expand on that a little bit? Yeah, I've been doing improvising for a long time. Um, I think it must be about 41 years. So in that time, uh, it's changed. People's approach has changed. Uh, the way people train has changed. The influences that people kind of gather together in order to form their training or their teaching has changed. And I think in more recent times, when improvisation has become much, much more popular, I mean, so much more popular. When I first was first doing it in London in the mid-80s, there were eight improvisers in london really yeah and now there's um, a netflix special doing two prov right there you go 
uh, it's yeah you can't chuck a shitty stick in London now without hitting an improviser that's what that's how it is um, and I think part of that now that that's fantastic but what that also means is that in order for it to appeal to 800 people or 8,000 people not eight people um, the, the, the way people think about it has to change uh, because there were only eight people doing it because it seemed like a ridiculous, strange, um, kind of self-defeating and not particularly useful thing to do in 1987. That has to change for, for lots of people to get involved in it. And so I think what kind of happens is that it gets at a certain, in a certain way, how to do it becomes simplified. Because that's what you have to do. You have to kind of simplify it a bit. You have to kind of say, well, if you, if you sort of follow this guidance, if you tend to do this, and if you tend to do that, you will find yourself improvising. And that's true. That's what happens. And these tend to be things that most people can do. If you want to go beyond that point, if you want to go, if you want to start creating art, then other things have to come into play. Uh, and I think for me, and it's going to be different for absolutely everyone, for me, this idea of noticing what you notice, this idea of awareness, this idea of including everything in the field is one of the ways that you kind of deepen the work beyond uh, yes and, beyond um, establishing a physical reality, beyond whatever. And noticing what you notice in the way you described it to us was um, just putting like a lit, like your hand behind your ear and making it sound like a little voice that could be saying something negative or could be saying something positive, but something that is just nattering away at you in your subconscious. Yeah, it's. I mean, the thing is, one way to think about it is is, is it's an extension of yes and. So we we think of yes and as a, a thing where somebody comes on and they say, oh, you know, I'd like a. I'd like some pork chops, please. And you, yes, and that you go, well, yes, here's some pork chops and I've got a special offer on sausages today or whatever. So we think about yes, and as, as a way to respond to offers made to us by other players. But if you deepen and extend the yes, and if you say, well, what happens if you say yes to the emotion that you are feeling in the real world in that moment? What happens if you say yes to the doubtful thought that's in the back of your mind in that moment? What happens if you say yes to your anxiety about the political situation or the pandemic situation? What happens if you say yes to um, a weird fantasy that pops into your head in that moment? That's noticing what you notice and, and kind of accepting that the offers that come to you are more than what your friend on stage says or does isn't that's not the only offer there's actually a billion billion offers being made by from inside you and from everything that the other person is doing uh, and that everything that the room is offering and everything that the community and society is offering and everything the universe is offering uh, and that's awareness so awareness is really just a, dip, a kind of deepening. Noticing what you notice is just a deepening of yes and. It's just you're saying yes and to the totality of existence. And does that um, go behind the concept of what you taught us, which was the concept of improv actors having presence on stage? Does that inform presence? Absolutely, because if you're if you're if you're saying kind of if you're saying yes to that 
kind of full spectrum of experience, then then you're in the moment and you're absolutely in the moment because you're paying attention to what is happening in the moment. You're responding to what is happening in the moment, but not just in the moment in terms of what the other person says to you, in terms of what you're feeling, what you're thinking. You take your feelings and your thoughts and your anxieties on stage with you, just as you take your body on stage with you. Uh, the audience see that, and I believe, it's only a, an act of faith, but I believe the audience perceive that on some level. If you kind of ignore that, if you sort of don't pay any attention to that, it's harder to be present because that stuff is in you. That stuff is churning around. That stuff is flying around the room. But by ignoring that, you're not present with that. I think if you can work to be present with that, then it makes you more present as a, as a performer. And when you're teaching and trying to get people better at presence, a lot of people who are improvisers and maybe not experienced actors, they might be quite new to acting. How do you try and bring that out in maybe exercises or things like that in your classes? I think, first of all, it's just introducing the idea. I think it's also letting people know that it, it's a, it's a thing that applies whatever you're doing. So it doesn't matter whether you're doing word at a time, whether you're doing a status exercise, whether you're doing you know a, an environment exercise, any kind of exercise or any kind of you know even a, even a, a a real kind of comedy exercise like a genre um, a genre roller coaster or whatever. You can bring that sense to all of that, and it's it's kind of strange because it is acting, but it isn't acting. It's if you if you spoke like this to an to an actor, they they would think you were asking them to be an improviser, because you're actually asking them to be awake to what's being offered to them, and to have an honest response to that, and to have a kind of dialogue with what's happening in the moment, moment to moment to moment. So it's a kind of strange thing where actors feel like it's improvising and improvisers can feel like it's acting, but it's they are the same thing. That's the big news, is acting is improvising and improvising is acting. You emphasise quite a lot um, to kind of probably diffuse our nerves when you mention terms like Stanislavski and Chekhov and how we were going to do some of those exercises, that it was kind of the, the wanky philosophical side of things, which kind of made us all laugh and be like, oh, thank God we don't have to pretend to be like the greatest actors ever. Mm. Um, what do you think that those techniques can teach an improviser in terms of uh, Stanislavski and Chekhov? Well, because the great teachers, the great acting teachers, or even the great teachers um, that are outside of acting, Arnie Mindell or Harrison Owen uh, or Amy Mindell, or Viola Spolin. You know, Viola Spolin didn't begin with performance work. She began with working with, you know, immigrant kids in Chicago. All of their teaching is essentially around spontaneity and awareness, but just using different language. So Stanislavski or Michael Chekhov, their, their teachings around acting were just to make their actors or to help their actors be more alive more awake, more aware, to help them to bring themselves and their own responses and their own anxieties and their own emotions and include them into what they do on the stage. Uh, in in, those, in that, that case, that's while they're saying words written by a playwright. But in, in essence, it's absolutely no different. 
you're still trying to be aware and awake to everything that's happening in the moment and allowing that to inform what you do and how you do it and and through that be present through that presence connect to the audience and the rest of the people on stage with you so they're all talking about the same thing this is what's really i find this really encouraging is that whenever you you sort of discover another great teacher you go oh yeah they're saying the same thing they're all saying the same thing can we be awake can we be aware because That's people it. people seem to i think try and pitch Stanislavski's system versus Chekhov's acting approach um do you think they're do you like to pick one or the other or do you think they're both compatible with improv yeah pe- people will always take sides <laughs> people like a fight uh, people, uh, people like a schism, um, and that's fun. There's nothing wrong with that. You know, enjoy yourselves, knock yourselves out. I think if you kind of take a step back and you and you get a little bit more detached around it, I think if you go back, often if you go back to the original source, if you go back to the actual source, often those fights, I think, are the followers of or the devotees of having a punch up with each other. I think if you go back to the source and you know, you interpret that. You, I take from that what I is useful for me, and I'm sure I interpret it in a way that somebody else might interpret it totally differently. Uh, I see it through improvisation, an improvisational lens. So perhaps what I'm seeing, you know, isn't isn't as much there as I think it is. But I take what's useful for me. Um, I don't really get involved in any of that stuff. I think. I think if any if there's if someone's a great teacher, if you look hard enough, if you look closely enough, you can find the gold in there. Um, I mean, you know, Keith. Like, if you're in a Keith Johnston workshop, a lot of the time Keith is just telling stories. I mean, that's it's really interesting being in a Keith Johnston workshop. He does amazing exercises and he has a kind of vision that nobody else has ever had. But also, a good chunk of it is him telling stories. Now, you can sit there and go, oh, well, you know, Keith's just why he's telling stories. But in those stories, there's it's like there's, there's deep teaching in those stories. Um, so it's, there's, you, one, is beho- one's, one is beholden to put something into that relationship with a teacher whether that's a teacher that you kind of meet in person and you work with in person or someone whose work you read and you have to kind of pull something out of that you have to bring yourself to it and bring your own experience to it and take from it what's useful for you and is that useful for improvisers who might be listening to this who are fans of long form um short form narrative is it do you think it works across the board because obviously you're heavily involved with the comedy store players and you do improv um, short form for hundreds of people twice a week is it applicable for both and multi sorts of improv I, I believe so i think it's totally applicable for all all forms of improv i would say as i said before i think it's applicable right from you know the comedy store players which is as gaggy and short formy as it gets all the way through to the improvised theater that my company improbable do where we will improvise yeah, it's improvised theatre. That it's funny sometimes, but it's also not funny. It's emotional. It's psychological, and and all of that. And we've done that in we've done that at the National Theatre for God's sakes, and then all the way through to 
kind of acting when you've been given the lines, when you're speaking the words of Shakespeare or Chekhov or Ibsen. Um, I think that it applies right across that spectrum. If I could move on slightly, but probably there's some link up here about an exercise you use in your class, which I think you pretty much use as a staple and how helpful it is, is word at a time story. Mm. Um, And when you're teaching, why do you feel like that exercise in particular is so useful? There's some lovely things about word at a time story. One is that you can't shine. It doesn't matter how brilliant you are as an improviser. Uh, You are, uh, you can't be brilliant. Uh, You just have to give yourself over to the process. And you can't get good at it. I love it because you can't get good at it. Uh, Now, a pair of people might work together a lot and get really good at it. Uh, And I I find that kind of less interesting. But if you're in a workshop and you pick people, you're changing the person you're working with all all, all the time, you can't. You can't be good. You you are you are brought face to face with your own limitations, with your own feelings. We we talked about awareness and noticing what's happening in you. It's easier to avoid noticing what's happening in you if you're in a scene and you're being brilliant. Um, why would you then think about what's happening in you? What thoughts are occurring in you? What your opinions of yourself are? What your judgments of yourself are? If you're just being brilliant and everyone loves you, in word at a time story, it's impossible. You will fail. There'll be moments, however brilliant it is, there's going to be moments in it when it dries, when it gets sticky, when it gets difficult, when you go around in circles, when you don't know what you're doing. And those moments are beautiful opportunities, beautiful windows where you're in a critic, uh, where your sense of doubt, when your kind of anger is all going to come up. It's all going to it's all going to come up, and it's going to be there, and you're going to be able to see it, and you're going to be able to notice what you notice. So I guess it's 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 back to that thing of noticing what you notice. I think it's a beautiful exercise to bring you face to face with what's actually happening in you, not what you like to be happening in you. And I guess that is um, applicable for when it's on stage because audiences like to see improvisers fail. They like to see, or at least they like to see the edge of failure. They like to see the improviser like nearly tripping and then, you know, seeing that like maybe, I don't know if, it, if this is a wanky term, but pure improv. It's like you see like the improv gold dust, people having to, not being good at it. Absolutely. People not being good at it is is a beautiful, beautiful thing. There's an improviser who doesn't work much anymore, but he's kind of from from the early days with me, a guy called Guy Dartnell. And he fails more beautifully than anyone I've ever seen. And that's why he's, that's why audiences fall in love with him. Because he fails, but he fails beautifully and so tenderly. Um, and that's, that's a wonderful thing. Because I've, I've not explored this too much, but um, Connor Jatta, who also does clowning workshops at Hoopla, talks a lot about that about failure and leaning into it and noticing how much the audience can get out of that and i think clowning is that is that anything that you've ever explored not not extensively i mean i I know that about clowning um i love that about clowning i think that's what makes clowning really brilliant and brutal uh, and uh, fantastic form um it's not something i've done a lot of uh, but i i agree with 
I agree with those words. I think that's absolutely right. And I think I think it's a thing that improvisers can learn from clowning is like what, what, when, when it starts to go wrong, when it starts to fail, what happens then? How do you respond to that? How oh, can you stay awake? This is something we say to people who, who want to be in our, our, our shows. We say, look, it will go wrong. When it goes wrong, can you sit in that? Don't, can you not try and just get out of it straight away? Can you sit in that failure and find out what's there? Uh, and often what's there is transformation uh, and something really, really beautiful. But you have to be prepared to sit in it for longer than it's comfortable. And that's not always easy to instill in an improviser. It's incredibly hard to instill in anybody. Why would you want to stay in failure? Every fibre of your being is screaming, get out, do something interesting, be funny, be be amusing. It takes a good deal of courage, guts, and perhaps foolhardiness, or arrogance even, to to kind of stick in that moment and that place of awkwardness and failure. But in my experience, uh, it can lead to the most extraordinary work. And like in terms of how you've experienced that, have you, if you could look back at yourself as a young improviser being in the comedy store players since, what was it, 1989, 1990? Something like that. And how you've dealt with performing in front of the general public a lot and how you've lent into failure and how you've changed as an improviser i think i think yeah i think you get you get braver you get more bloody minded you get you you if 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 it works and this doesn't always work you get a sense of detachment so i think the thing the comedy the comedy story is a very sort of specific specific event is a specific kind of show and it's almost it, it, it's an improv show. It's what it is, but it's all—it's almost like not an improv show. It's it, because it's—it's it's about those people on that stage. Um, it's about the personalities on the stage. The characters, such as they are, are worn so lightly um, and are shrugged off so easily that they almost are non-existent. I would say so. But of course, at the comedy store, what you have is a potentially a, a, an aggressive audience. I think um, a lot of people listening to this are going to be extremely interested in that because improv venues such as the Free Association or Hoopla are very friendly, um, yeah. typically. Um, how do you deal with an aggressive audience? Well, I think it's this detachment thing. I think it's very easy to think that you have to win. So someone shouts something, oh, they shout something out and... Uh, there's, a, well, there's a group of rowdy people or whatever and you think oh I have to be faster and funnier and quicker than them I have to kind of beat them down there's a competition here and I have to win the competition and then we can carry on with the show and I think I began with that idea uh, and of course it doesn't work because they're, they're, they're not funnier than you otherwise they'd be on the stage they just want a reaction the, the, and in some ways, the kind of more you, you come down on like a ton of bricks, the more pleased they are, the more they're going to carry on. So 
I think what it's about, especially in an improv environment when you're in that kind of rough crowd thing, it's it's about accepting the energy that's coming from the audience. You kind of don't fight it. It's, there's a You could think of yourself as trying to fight that energy and trying to squish it down. Don't squish it down. Take it, like absorb it, notice it, and notice what's happening in yourself. In that moment, can you know, when someone shouts, ah, you know, fuck, why are you fuck off? Um, tell a fucking joke. You know, you think, oh, I wish I had a kind of like a stand-up comedian's comeback to that. But it doesn't really work. In that moment, can you have a, a kind of honest response with yourself? And can you detach from your own sense of being bullied or got at or, f- or or kind of screwing it up? Can you enjoy that moment? Can you talk about how you're feeling in that moment? Can you talk about what's happening in the room in that moment? Can you talk about how that, what what's happening is affecting everybody in the room in that moment? And if you do that with a kind of detachment, if you do that that shows you're not got at by it, it's extraordinary how effective that is. Extraordinary. Because you're not disciplining anybody. You're almost encouraging it. But then it, it sort of takes the steam it takes the steam out of it. They kind of this doesn't work all the time. Sometimes the bouncers have to throw them out. But it tends to just take the steam out of it. And it kind of you get then people see this person on stage being shouted at and abused. And they're not flustered by it they're not angry about it and your kind of status in the room goes way up Um, your control of the room increases by not trying to have control of the room so it's very much an improviser's response in lots of ways it's an offer really can i can i yes and the heckle i think that's a fascinating way to look at it because it goes i think against most human reactions of fight or flight Absolutely. That's the that's the tricky thing. You're you're you've nailed it there. The your 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 first reaction, your inexperienced reaction is fight or flight. And often you you find yourself caught doing fifty percent of one and fifty percent of the other. Um if you can train yourself to do the other thing, to as I say, almost accept the offer of that um heckle or shout or rowdy group or whatever, uh you can regain uh, a stake in the situation and yeah and and find a way to to carry on now i'm talking about it doesn't always work you know you know the wednesday the wednesday before christmas can be you know a little rough and in the end it can end up being crowd control you can be talking to the crowd more than you're doing your scenes but you know there you go are there any people in the players who deal with it better or worse than others Yes, but I'm not going to name names. (laughs) Very diplomatic. We're talking about the sort of atmosphere you create and the environment you create when you come into the class, and it's very relaxed and very welcoming. And I think that puts a lot of people at ease. Um, And that is kind of typified by the notes you put on the wall, which is the rule of two feet and what was happened was supposed to happen. I wondered if Mm. you could maybe extrapolate on that a little bit. So one of the things that one of the well, I've talked a little bit about kind of great teachers and one of the ones I mentioned was a guy called Harrison Owen and Harrison Owen invented a thing called what well, didn't invent he kind of discovered in a way a thing called open space technology. 
So he, this happened in the mid-80s in the States and is nothing to do with theatre, nothing to do with the arts. It's a, it's a non-hierarchical way for large groups to come together and to work on issues of importance to them. Now, there may be very technical issues or there may be political issues or social activism issues or whatever. Um, but it's, it, it's based on the idea of self-organization. So he talks about how groups, if you if you get organization out of the way, if you take away managing people, actually human beings are amazing at self-organizing. And in self-organizing groups, people work more efficiently, more effectively, and are happier doing what they do. Uh, so Phelim, who's the co-artistic director of Improbable with me, Phelim McDermott, he found this thing, this open space technology, and he became obsessed by it. He brought it into the company. And we started holding these open space events. We called them devoted and disgruntled, and we did them mostly for the theatre community or the arts community. And we took to it like a duck to water because, guess what? Self-organisation, non-hierarchical, uh, you, you have a large group of people who meet without an agenda, but they organize themselves. It's improvisation. He's talking about improvisation. He's using the dynamics of improvisation to, for, to allow people to work on real world issues. So it felt very natural for us to do that. And it became a way for our company and probable to go out into the world and work on world issues in the world, but also uh, we were able to bring our improvisational experience to that process. At the same time, we we kind of imported that open space technology idea into our rehearsal and improvisation processes. So it was kind of a two-way thing because, as I said, all the great teachers are essentially talking about the same thing. So um, we brought that in and we ended up making our rehearsal rooms essentially running on open space principles and uh, I run my workshops to some degree and it's influenced by these open space principles so the principles are uh, pretty simple I go through them really quickly um, whenever it starts is the right time so there's an idea that we work by the clock but we don't creativity doesn't work by the clock so whenever we start is when we start that's the right time whoever comes with the right people you know, we're in show business. We can wish there were more people in the audience or different people in the audience. We can wish the hecklers weren't there, but they are there. If we can approach that with the idea that whoever turns up are the right people, then that changes kind of our mindset around that situation. Uh, wherever it happens is the right place. We can get hung up on the theatre we're in or the room we're in. You know, brilliant work can happen anywhere. You and I are on a, on a Skype call, telephone call. Yeah, this is this is where our work is happening right now. It can happen anywhere. Whatever happens is the only thing that could have. Again, that's such an improvisational uh, principle. How you know you can beat yourself up all you like about a, a scene that you did wrong or a or a, or a play that you didn't do right. That ain't gonna help. Uh, whatever happens is the only thing that could have. Why? Because it did. The sooner you can find acceptance around that, the sooner you can get on for, to, to learning the lessons that you can learn from that situation. And the last one is when it's over, it's over, which is kind of about, I mean, how many scenes, <laughs> how many uh, improv scenes should have been over 10 minutes ago? Uh, can you spot when it's over? When it's over, it's over. Can you leave the stage? 
So those are principles, and they're not rules, they're principles. They describe what happens in the world if you let the world do its own thing. And they describe what happens in a group of people if you let that group of people do their own thing and if you support them to do their own thing. Um, The only rule, and the one you kind of mentioned there, is the law of two feet or the law of mobility, because not everybody has two feet available to them, is that you, you take yourself to where your time is best spent. So where do you want to be? Where is, where is your time most effectively spent? And I think that's important. That's kind of almost the most radical thing in terms of a workshop or rehearsals. Because we say this in our rehearsals, even if we're rehearsing a play, we say, look, the law of two feet applies here. You come into this room and rehearse in this room if you choose to. If, you choose, if your time needs to be better spent somewhere else, then go somewhere else. So you put the responsibility for presence or non-presence not on the leader or the director or the teacher, but on the individual. So the individual chooses to be there or not be there. What that means is that if they're there, they've made an active choice to be there. So they are more present. I'll be back to presence again. They're more present because they've made an active choice to be there. If they need to go because, you know, they're waiting for a delivery or they've got to go and they're not really in the room because they're thinking about something else they might as well not be there don't be there go away deal with the thing you need to deal with and then come back and be really present so i think the law of two feet is fantastic uh, a, a fantastic another route into that idea of presence the idea of actively choosing to be where we want to be and where we need to be uh, and noticing when we need to be somewhere else I remember when um, we first went down to the bar downstairs after the first class and you imparted some of this to us and most of us over our pints were looking kind of dumbstruck because um, it's the first time we'd probably ever heard that in a teaching sense. Um, I don't know if that's the reaction you want from your class to kind of, like the first time humans are told about fire. <laughs> that's, not the, that's not the intention at all. I mean, it, I just, it's a... The law of two feet is, is something that I've found so valuable in performing, in uh, in my life even, certainly in, in work. And uh, Phelan says, my God, if the law of two feet applied to audiences, theatre would get better immediately. And as someone who has had to stop an audience from leaving by making engaging shows, what are your favourite short form games that an audience enjoy and you enjoy playing? My favourite short form games, I would say, based on what we talked about earlier, word at a time, I like the three-headed expert. Audiences really like that because I think it, uh, they, can see, they can see the mechanics. They can absolutely see the challenge that people are facing uh, and like word, it's word at a time. So I think it means that uh, it forces people, however brilliant they are, to work collectively. And the more collectively they work, the more successful it is. And then if anyone tries to be funny, it dies, which that, that pleases me enormously. I know this is the case for me whenever I do short form with yeah. pe- with certain people. Is there any, is there like a game and a person in the players or anybody else who you're just like, oh yes, I get to do that with them because I know they're really good at it or they're really, they find it really difficult. So it's going to be really funny for the audience. You know, I'm, I'm thinking, I'm thinking a long time ago, we, a, a show I did, oh my God. Yeah. Back in the eighties that's the 1980s people, was a thing called Hamlet Improvised. Wow. Uh, and this was a show that I think was, I think I'm right in saying was basically lifted from Canadian theatre sports. This will be about 1987. 
um, um, Hamlet improvised was the story of Hamlet with some kind of linking dialogue, but with improv games slotted into the various scenes. Um, and yeah, we did this. We did this in a place called the Cricklewood Production Village. That was a venue. Wow, well, uh, I live in Wilsdon, and I've never heard of that. I don't know if it's still there. I, it, it was a kind of an old. It was the old Cricklewood Film Studios, oh. and there was a little studio theatre in there. Um, and we we used to perform it in there like once a week or something. So that was one of my one of the earliest shows I did. So Hamlet improvised, and one of the people I used to w- was part of that team was a guy called Neil Ashdown. Is a guy called Neil Ashdown. Oh, he came and uh, taught us for a week. There you go. So um, I remember and what, at the beginning of the show, you'd pick the, your, your parts out of a hat. And there was one scene, which was the Ophelia mad scene. And we would do that as a rhyming scene, I seem to remember, because the idea was that because you were rhyming, you ended up talking sort of nonsense. So it was kind of like the Ophelia mad scene. Uh, so if I was Hamlet or Ophelia and Neil was Hamlet or Ophelia, we would get to play that scene together. Um, and I, we were both, we both thought ourselves pretty good at <laughs> rhyming. We thought, oh yeah, I'm pretty good at rhyming. Uh, so of course it would get competitive. It would get a little bit competitive, but it, had, it was on that lovely edge of really enjoying doing it, but also wanting to kind of win and do the best rhyme. Uh, and what was the ask for was, can you tell us, the audience had to give us a great disaster or something, a great disaster um, that was that Ophelia was obsessed by. So it would be the Titanic or, you know, whatever, the, the Hundred Years' War or the sinking of the Lusitania or something. That, that would be the thing that you, you would kind of base it all around. And I remember enjoying those particularly. All these years later, I still remember enjoying those. Well, I think um, Neil's been uh, teaching the improvised opera course at Hoopla, so maybe he's been imparting that to some of his new students. May well, yeah, may well. May, he, he's amazing with improvisation and music, really. He's one of the first people who I remember being just astonished at how beautiful his singing voice was and how brilliant he was at improvised singing. I've also seen him rap at Hoopla, which is a very incredible thing to see. That is pretty extraordinary. Yeah, lucky anyone who gets to do that. Um, so maybe this might um, have been informed by what you've just said uh, before, but this is what I'm asking everybody. If there was a show that was held in honour of Lee Simpson, um, and that might be coming up, who knows, as soon as the lockdown's <laughs> over, um, and you got to pick a venue, a host, and three acts to perform on that night, um, what would they be? God, I have absolutely no idea. I can I can take away the venue and the host if that simplifies it. <laughs> I'm torn. Be- I'm torn between like uh, the comedy store. See, this is it. This is because I lead a, I lead a, I lead this split life. I lead this split life between my my world of the comedy store and my world of the improbable. And the comedy store is this kind of gag happy sort of almost violent crazy gang thing uh, and then improbable is this very esoteric experimental gentle uh beautiful uh, delicate improvisation uh, and the two are absolutely related but 
like, oh my goodness, it's like choosing between my children. Like, which which do I go for? Do I go for you know the comedy store and is the comedy store players and that's it? And we do a we do a players gig, or is it um, Animo, which is um, our we, we call it the bastard child of puppetry and uh, and improvisation, where we get materials and um, like sell a tape on newspaper or brown paper or or, or wadding or or felt or whatever, and we would imp- we would improvise puppetry with them and improvise the puppets themselves and it was dark and mysterious and odd i'm not answering your question aren't I? I'm, well you I've can have answered. three you've got like three slots here everyone's taken um all three usually so you could have the comedy store players um and Anna. okay well we start at the comedy store we do we, we the, the players we do we, we start at the comedy store and we do some of the players and then we go to where should we go to let's go to the new diorama theater this is the first we, time anyone's ever swapped theatres midway through. This is going to be an experience that's going to be written down yeah, for generations. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's an immersive, it's an immersive evening. Uh, we we go, uh, yeah, we we um, we start the comedy store and we do, you know, some 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 of the players show as is, uh, with a with a leery and loud, but uh, but friendly audience, and then we go to the new diorama, and um, with Guy Dartnell and. Uh, Neil Ashdown and Alex Murdoch and Ruth Bratt uh, we do and and Steve Tiplady uh, and Fayla McDermott we do uh, an animo sorry anybody who I've left out of here is just I'm thinking of people as I go along we do an animo a beautiful delicate animo uh, and then we go to uh, the Buxton Opera House and we do a life game well, you've travelled quite the way for the second one, for the third one, sorry, all the way up to Buxton. That's yeah. going to have to be, we're going to have to factor in coach travel, refreshments. Um, it's a logistical nightmare, there's no question. No, it's okay. I think this is probably just the most logistically interesting one we've had. Would you like to host it all yourself, or is there anyone specific that you think would be a great host for all this? I think, I think I'll open at the players. Phelan can open uh, Animo. And yeah, I'll I'll interview the life game. Okay, well, brilliant. I think I'm going to start putting some feelers out to agents and stuff to see what we can do. Um, Let's do this. Um, but this has been an absolutely brilliant chat, Lee. Thank you so much for joining us on the Hoopla Impro Podcast. My pleasure. Thanks for taking the time to listen to the Hoopla Impro Podcast. You can now find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and on Spotify, and we'd really appreciate a rating. You can also head over to hooplaimpro.com where you'll find a great range of resources and exercises as well as information on upcoming classes. See you next time.